contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Live on Four Legs Pod. The other night I, I, I tried to get on the internet in a hotel to, uh, to look up maybe some lists, you know, things like, you know, songs we've never played before, songs we've never played once or something. I, I thought I'd use the internet for something um, worthwhile. But uh, when you do that in a hotel, they, they, they tell you all the systems that you can connect to, the wireless systems that you can connect to, and obviously there's one in there that's actually the hotel. And, and then there's a few that say like some chemical name like Linksys or something. I don't know. But then there's ones that obviously they're the people that are staying there. And it's like, you know, Billy's Club Internet or, you know, Jana's secret posters. I don't know, something. But, but one of them was, it kind of stood out, it was the Dundas Hookers on Crap. They still have a sense of humor. And away we go. You're listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring Mr. Stone Gossip. Fucking camera in the truck. everybody now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live pearl jam podcast and unfortunately we have to say goodbye to the manfield series because there isn't a fourth you know if it was done today yeah there could have been like four five six seven maybe more like 11 or so but they only finished with 97 and we know that their catalog has expanded so we're gonna dig more deeper into the catalog here by going back to 2013 and the 10-year anniversary of this show that you may have forgotten. Now, everybody knows what happened in July of 2013. There's one thing that stands up above everything else, and that is the first ever performance at Wrigley, the thunderstorm, the delay, on and on. You all know the story. But this show in London, Ontario, Canada, was the first show that, and people might have said, Okay, this is maybe the warm-up for Wrigley, but when you look at it and dig a little deeper, there's a lot more there. It's interesting to talk about, and I think that what we'll find in this is a show that needs 
much more respect than it's gotten because, again, the no bootleg thing, and who knows, might get a vault on the horizon. This could be something that's in the bank. No idea, but let's hope. After this show, maybe we can prove that to you that it deserves it. All right. Randy Sobel over here. Over there is not John Farrar. He's out Godzilla hunting right now. That is sort of the truth, but we'll find out next week what happened. So we have enlisted our sister podcast, the Hallucinogenic Recipe co-host, Patrick Bogle, who was at this show and will give us the juicy details. Patrick, welcome to co-hosting. What's up, man? What's going on, Randy? Good to talk to you again. Of course, yeah. So what about this show? And I, I know we've talked about this show a lot, just sort of bullshitting around. And this was an important show for you. So talk a little bit about why this show is important. And then we're going to get into a guest in just a second, one of our patrons, Tim. And we'll kind of bounce some ideas off each other. But just give us a little bit of the beginning of the story here for you. Yeah, so for me, this is kind of a personal journey. I had not seen Pearl Jam since the second MSG show in 2008. There's a lot of things that were going on in life that made that challenging to get out to like the 09 and 10 U.S. legs and the Canada tour in 2011 and PJ20. So when this came to pass, it was like January of 2013 when they did the lottery for it. I was like, oh, I'm going to go in for that. I wasn't going to be able to do Wrigley just based on the timing of it being weekend show. So I was like, I'll try to do this London one. Let's see what works out with the lottery and got lucky hit it one then spent the next six months waiting (laughs) and i was supposed to go with my wife we had planned to go and then we had something get in the way of that so i ended up making the journey on my own i invited a bunch of people they could not go because it was a weeknight i can't even fathom that happening now that i wouldn't have been able to give away a ticket (laughs) um (laughs) but it was a struggle uh, believe it or not So I hopped in the car on the morning of the show and hiked from just outside Albany, New York, up to London, Ontario, through the central and western New York off of I-90, and then made my way across the border, drove past a ton of farms, and found myself in London, Ontario for the first time at this incredibly cool venue that It would be hard to believe that it was built in 2002, I believe, was when they put this thing together because it looked like it had been there for half century or more. It had that old feel to it. It's kind of a charmer type of show. It was the first time I had the opportunity to go see what really amounted to like one of those tour kickoff, not like a leg kickoff, but like a, a practice show essentially is really where it fits. It's like in that realm of Bellingham in 2000 or actually Vancouver also in the Vancouver ballroom that they played the night after that. So like one of those warm up gigs that they've done, that's all had been something that I wanted to try to get to and the stars aligned and there I was with two seats all to myself. I couldn't <laughs> give away a ticket. That's amazing because... This place seats nearly, the max isn't 10,000. It's nearly 10,000. It's like 9.7 or something like that. It's intimate in terms of the setting there. I mean, you could feel it. It's not a huge arena. We're not talking about the Boston Garden, Madison Square Garden, Chicago Stadium, anything like that. You could feel the room. It was tight knit. And you are able to see there is one very strange YouTube video that is pretty obsessed with finding Pearl Jam tattoos on people. 
And that happens for about, you know, if it's a 14 minute video, it happens for about 10 that all this cameraman is doing is looking at legs and looking at stick man tattoos. A little strange, but what you do see is that you see all the crowds that build up and pack in trying to get the 10 club tickets and waiting online for that. And apparently it was a really hot day. So that altogether, I'm very, very surprised you didn't find anyone to take your extra. But we actually have an extra for this episode here because this is a request from our patron, Tim Fortescue. And He wanted to hear this one, and I don't disagree. We're always interested in the underdog shows. As much as we had a big success and a lot of fun doing the Mansfield trilogy, this is a show that, again, not on a lot of people's radars because of the bootleg situation, but love doing these shows to sort of get a little bit of the insight as to something that might not have the knowledge for. Seeing that as we have two people that were at this show, we can kind of bounce the stories off of each other. I think we're in a good spot. So let's say hello to Tim. Tim, how's it going? Thanks for coming on. Randy. Yeah, thanks, Randy. It's great to be here. And thank you for featuring this show. Thanks also for doing what you do with the podcast. With John and Patrick, hello as well. How's it going? It's going great. So let's start here. We got Patrick's story a little bit. And before we were talking, you said that you lived up in Ann Arbor. That's a little bit of a road trip to London, Ontario, but it's kind of, in a way, almost feels like kind of in the middle of the Wrigley show too, kind of in the middle of Chicago. So you went to both, but tell us exactly why this one was the choice. Yeah, I went to both Wrigley and the London show and I, and What's special about both of them to me is they were both road trips with my brother. My brother lives in the Detroit area, and at the time I lived in Ann Arbor. And this one in particular has all the ingredients of a great show. It had the experience of like who you're with. I think that's such a big part of what makes a show memorable. And two and a half or three hour road trip with my brother was fun. And then we got in. I remember getting in because we procrastinated on when we took off. We kind of hustled in to get our tickets, uh, had a drink, saw where the fan club was hanging out briefly. I remember how hot it was in London that day. If it was like the hottest day of the year, it felt like. And then we just sprinted in and the energy was off the chart. So it, it had the elements of a small venue of who I was with. The set list is fantastic, which I'm sure you're going to get into in depth. But yeah, this one to me... I was expecting Wrigley would be the one that was the most memorable, but as we know, that was the thunderstorm show and that created issues. This is the one that stands out to me. Yeah. It's very interesting because even so without like Wrigley behind it or anything like that, the way that I see this show now that we've gotten some videos underhand, like this is the beginning, the official beginning of not just that little run, but like the lightning bolt era. And the Lightning Bolt era essentially lasted five years. They were still kind of touring for it in 2018. And you see all of the stage decor there, the big bird's nest that's high above. At least I think it's a bird's nest. It might be something else. The orbs come back. There's a lot of things that feel very familiar. And I think when you go back on watching it, it just feels like it is sort of the debut for that which is very interesting again because nobody ever mentions it at all but did you guys get that feel like when you saw like the stage setup and knowing that they didn't have an opener which was not 
common at the time. It was billed as an evening with Pearl Jam. Usually they had somebody like X or Mud Honey opening for them, but no, this was just straight up Pearl Jam going on at 8 o'clock and ending at 10.30, which is a very, very solid show. But did you feel like this was a sense of almost a new and fresh Pearl Jam that you were getting? I definitely did. I mean, I, that was one of the, like the notions of going was like, I knew that we we're on the cusp of a change. You know, the winds were blowing about an album coming out even before the shows itself, like the talk of the recordings and what was going on. So that was another impetus for wanting to get out there and the hope that maybe you'd catch a couple of things. And, you know, back in the day that would be going on with these tours is that before the albums were coming out, you were getting a glimpse of what the songs were. I think they probably held back a little bit on these, but walking into the venue and for me being five years apart and not really having witnessed the Backspacer tour, but with watching videos and listening to bootlegs, it definitely was a new, fresh feeling. And you could tell like it was a little bit of an era change. Yeah, I felt the same way where the word you said that I really hone in on is the fresh, the freshness and the energy was fresh. Really, when you look at the calendar of what they've been doing earlier that year, they played a couple shows, a couple festivals, and that's it. So I would imagine in my Pearl Jam fan imagination that they've been working on the new album and finalizing Lightning Bolt, but it hadn't been out much. So it was this chance to see them. Again, I, I'd seen them at the DeLuna Fest in 2012 in Florida. I saw PJ20 both nights. So, I mean, I'd seen them in this phase. But then to take a break and see them again, it just felt like the energy from the band as well as the crowd was different. It's like something I hadn't quite experienced before. And then when you factor in the way they started, which I, I don't want to step on where we might be going in a second, but when they led with present tense, it magnified that feeling of this is different. Yes, dead on. This was fresh. This felt new, new era. And from the time that they released Mind Your Manners, which felt like no more than about a week or two, it must have been a, on a 10 club release, right? A newsletter. Because if that's the 10th and this show is the 16th, then this is not even a week later. Does that feel right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I actually looked it up just before I to prep for this, and it was July 11th, the digital Mind Your Manners was released, and then this show was five days later. So I probably listened to Mind That's Your Manners. That's insane. Yeah, I probably listened to Mind Your Manners in my car about 500 times before the show, but it was only five days. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a great sensation when you know that a new album is coming out, but they actually drop the hint and let you in on the secret like right as you're about to pack up and leave like the whole entire time that i was going to wrigley all i was doing was just listening to mind your manners and being like wow and no the whole record didn't sound like mind your manners which i wanted it to but it felt like a new pearl jam and when your favorite band has something brand new that you're excited about your whole world turns upside down I agree. I mean, it's Christmas when a new album comes out. That's what it is. And you're like, you're digging into all of the newness and you want to see like what's in the next box. So that's what you're hoping for at shows like this and early shows in a tour is like, am I going to get a glimpse of what's coming? 
My mind was blown where they placed it too. It was the fifth track on the set list. And so when they led with present tense, nothing man, and then elderly woman, which was the first time I'd ever experienced the triple sing-along as the opener, they may have done it before, but I had never experienced it. And then into Corduroy, which blew the roof off. That was sort of the initial four song set. And then bang, right into Mind Your Manners, the live debut. It was a special night already. Now, I'm going to go back to what you were saying before, Tim, about the three-song, whatever you want to call it, sing-along open, slow burn open, because, yes, they had done something like this before, but not in the sense where the whole entire tour was structured in this way. I really feel like the way that they were the only act this whole entire tour year and that most of these shows got anywhere from two and a half to three hours long that the whole idea of pacing themselves and starting off a little bit more campy and starting off a little bit more you know not with like go and corduroy right off the bat but like songs that you wouldn't necessarily like there are shows on this tour that i believe you know most of them are pendulum to open but i believe there's one or two that have both like release and wash in them and that feels almost impossible to see those two songs in a set together but that changes a new landscape too and that kind of defines what this is because yeah you're right like these three and kind of breaking out i want to ask you guys like was this a big surprise to you did you think that after present tense they were going to go right into the rockers corduroy and and minor manners and hail hail kind of stuff That's exactly what I thought. I think so. You're going to start with present tense and then tee up animal or, you know, something like, like right into hail, hail and to go to nothing man. And then elderly woman with like two pure sing-alongs in a small venue, less than 10,000 people singing along. It just felt so unique and cool. Totally agree. Yeah. And present tense is is a story in and of itself. And when we really dig into the set list, that's going to be a huge talking point. But look at the other songs that they played on this night. It has the greatest hits, some of them. But when you get down to like the stuff that's the glue part of the set, you have in hiding, you have I got shit, you have sad, you have alone, getting a serious collector song. Even in the encore, getting smile into Brain of Jay is that's really kind of eye opening. And parachutes too, another really rare song, Man of the Hour. So this really seemed like you guys were getting songs that were like fan service songs instead of the everybody knows this kind of set list show. One of the things that I recall about this show is, and again, part of that is by having missed a couple of tours prior, but I think there were seven songs in this set that I had never heard before live. Wow. And then a, a handful that I had only seen once or twice. So it definitely was a, it was a special mix. You couldn't have the foresight to know where it was going to go, but at the end of the day, you looking back at that, this is kind of a roadmap for what was coming October and November. Coming off of Mind Your Manners to then go to Got Some and Given to Fly, Sad Alone, not only were they songs that don't always get played, they were some of my personal favorites too. And some of the songs that Randy mentioned, I got Id and Hiding, Lucan. To start the second encore with Smile and Brain of Jay before then they got into Better Man Alive and Rockin' in the Free World, but to start off the final encore song, 25 and 26, were Smile and Brain of Jay, 
what a nice way to go into the final set. From you, Tim, because Patrick is going to be on for the whole thing. What were like some of your big time moments? You kind of mentioned a few of those songs, like Mind Your Manners you were talking about, like maybe expand upon that a little bit. Like what after the show were you saying, wow, I can't believe I heard that. I go back to the first song when you're in a small venue and the lights go out and there's that moment of anticipation as a fan, what's going to be the opener? We're always talking about it, my friends and I. And and to hear the opening couple riffs of present tense and you're like, whoa, that's happening. You know, and like to slowly get in and the sing along and then the, the rev up of present tense and then to bring it down to nothing man and elderly woman that stayed with me when I left the show and will stay with me about a memory of this specific show. Another one was seeing Minder Manners because like I said, I was playing this song on repeat. You know, it had just come out. It was the newest thing that had been out. And to then not only see it, but see it early in the set, like at the fifth placement was a really cool memory. And then as I look through the rest of the set list, I've got my set list printed out here. Like it's like I'm preparing for a fantasy football draft without prepared for this. I've got my notes all over. Where's live footsteps daughter <laughs> when you need them? Man of the hour. I look at man of the hour as one of my all time favorite Pearl Jam songs. It's a song that has a special meaning to my wife and I when we first started dating. And by the way, I listened to your Manfield episode uh, night three the other day, and my heart just broke when I heard about the guy that brought his wife to that show, and then they got divorced within the first six months. And I mm. thought to myself, part of my vetting process for my wife was just like, is she okay with me really liking this one band? <laughs> And, and I brought her to the San Francisco <laughs> July 2006 when we first started dating. I brought her to the July 18th show, which I know you've covered. And she grabbed my hand and rushed ahead. We had main floor seats and she rushed ahead towards the stage with me. And I was like, wow. All right. Not only is this a keeper, I know I'm in love. So, so Pearl Jam has <laughs> been a part of our relationship. She's not a diehard fan like I am, but she likes the band a lot. And and so the man of the hour was in that sec- the first encore. And that's one of those that makes me think of my wife. And I was really happy to see that. Thank you so much, Tim, for joining us. Really good stories. It's great. And I I love that you submitted this show because of all the reasons I mentioned it before. It really does feel like you are getting a fresh start with everything. And it even makes the 2013 tour, the Lightning Bolt tour, which we don't go back to a whole lot because this still feels really recent to us, even if this show was exactly 10 years ago. This was definitely a refresher on this era and makes me realize that not to take what we got for granted in that, like, it's not just, oh, well, Lightning Bolt was more recent and it wasn't the best record or anything like that. It it made me appreciate what they did for fan service for the show. So that was really cool. I like it. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. I I really appreciate, especially that you chose to feature this, especially coming off of the landmark, you know, the monumental Mansfield shows to this sort of random or sort of like underground show. But like, when you look at the collection, that's what's cool about being a Pearl Jam fan and seeing the different types of shows and the different types of experiences. But thanks for what you do. I love this podcast. Thanks for having me on. All right, so we're almost ready to get into the set list. But before we do, because everything is happening, everything is so brand spanking new, one of our gear guru's favorite things to talk about is the stage setup and all the new gear, new fresh gear that they had 
on hand for a brand new tour. We've done it before. He's talked about 2003 gear. He's talked about 2006 gear all over the place. So this is an interesting time because Backspacer had a very, very interesting setup. So let's hear from Javier and see what he thinks about the beginning of the Lightning Bolt Tour. Hey, Randy. Hey, Patrick. Hey, everyone on the podcast for this week. So we're covering 2013, London, Ontario. And I know that Patrick wanted to talk a little bit about Ricks. So let's see if I get it right. From left to right, Savage Blitz 50, Empire 65, Union Jack with Marshall Stack ABX 1960, Ampex 4x12 cabinets, Marshall Stacks, Marshall Heads for Jeff. And then if we go to the right, Savage Blitz, I'm pretty sure there is an AC30 box in the back for Stone and a JCM 800. If my memory is correct, that is the rack that they were running in 2013. What are you trying to look for this? Blend. You're trying to kind of morph your sound and a combination of multiple elements. I know that in the previous weeks, we were covering the Mansfield experiment, right? And when you hear those bootlegs, the sound is very distinctive and you can put a name, Fender Bassman. That's the thing that they were running around that time and it sounds freaking great. But when we move forward to 2013, the approach was a little different. The amps that I was mentioning before, they're going to give you two elements that are key for the Pro Jam sound as we know it as of now. Headroom, yes, they are higher wattage amps. And B, they're going to give you a little bit more mitts. Try to think of those scorching solos with a two of screamer. Or later on, if we look at 2018, 2022, the Sodic EP booster, they're both are using right now for solos. So using all those elements are going to give you a little bit more driven approach and they're going to emphasize the mitts, something that is very well known as of today with the Pearl Jam sound. All right, Javier, we're going to go back to you for two more later. Very excited and thank you so much. And hopefully we got something cooking with Javier. We were going to do something really cool with him very soon. So hang on to that. We got some ideas. Hopefully it comes together within a couple weeks. But yeah, you guys will be really excited for that. I'm definitely looking forward to that. (laughs) Right? Yep. And guess what? I'm going to have almost no involvement. So I'm just going to be a fan and a listener as well. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. All right, time to get into the set. And as we mentioned with Tim, the lights go down. And for the fourth time in their history, the show's going to open with present tense. go over again like there's a picture of you that i know that you shared at one point i believe it was during present tense and it shows your face just so wide-eyed and elated just from hearing this and getting that first especially for you being five years 
since you've been to show. Do you remember that face? Like, what was going on in that head of yours? Just absolute elation. To get this song, which is a huge personal favorite off of No Code, I had seen it a few times, to be sure, but to get back in the saddle and then kick off with this and just seeing him and Mike in the light working through the vocal and the guitar, it was absolute peak experience and just set the evening off right on its perfect course. I can see that because this crowd, I mean, we got a bootleg for this. That is an audience bootleg because, as mentioned before, this is not an official. We can talk about that as time goes on, but it did seem like you were able to get a really good gauge of how they were reacting to this. And it felt like when that big surge happens in present tense, like the crowd was just on their feet up for it. tell that Ed was really excited to be there just in such a positive mood and it feels like that got to the crowd and everybody kind of felt it and latched onto it did you notice that from Ed or absolutely I mean to some extent it embodied the perfectness of the moment he'll talk about it a little bit later about the presence of being there and how important it was and that present tense being what it is what it's about being in the moment you could feel why he picked this. I mean, it came to him because he's like feeling what the band was about to embark on. And that again, a sort of like a newness, a freshness, we've got stuff to share, but they're taking an older song and they're putting it in a prominent spot and it just soared. I mean, you know, this is that type of song when they kick into it, everybody just takes it up a notch. Your body and your energy just goes up that one more level and to do it as an opener just added that much more to it. I fully agree. The crowd is so good as I mentioned and like you said it's a real perfect way to kick off a new era that was just unpredictable more than anything else. Again, what we have to follow, another sign of that unpredictability. Nothing man, small town. It felt like, again, Ed's voice is soaring on this and had a lot of excitement. They're two fan service songs, sing-alongs, and the whole idea of 2013 was sort of doing that slow burn, and some of the shows had Small Town and Nothing Man in it. That was a pretty common combo, but like that for this show really gets you into the groove and again another connection with the band 
just going back and forth with them. Now, Small Town, I think, is interesting because of the way that they sort of end it and how they kind of do another extra two measures to get the crowd to build and build and, and do that more. And that's not very common that they do that. No, absolutely, yeah. They were trying to build off the moment. That's one of those great things about this band live is like they're tapping into both their energy and the energy in the building and seeing where they can take it. And it just brings the music to another level. And I thought it was cool. I don't know if you heard this from a crowd member, but it might have been a group of crowd members. But you can hear when they're doing the third go around on it, you can hear a select group going, oh, well, you hear that and that. Yep. Yeah, they weren't prompted to do that. It was supposed to be like the next verse or whatever, but they just did it on their own. And I, I love that because everybody kind of knows and without thinking, like, there's your cue and yep. you're all in on it. Yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of moments like that that happen in the show because of the songs that they revamp a little bit, rework in terms of how they've done them live and those parts. But yeah, people pick up on those things from bootlegs and go into shows through the years and you get those little things that bleed through and it's it's classic. Well, now you're going to get into the big rockers. Like we mentioned, Mind Your Matters is going to come right up right here, right after Corduroy with a very, very interesting tease, even though they're not in the UK, it's still London. that excite you because that had never been done before that hadn't been done since mostly when they're doing clash references it's know your rights and then there was that one little thing that i like to ignore that happened in the netherlands in in 92 where a lot of people will say oh it was the version of straight to hell but it was just ed saying it for two lines or so it wasn't anything but getting this does it feel kind of like an unbelievable moment that that's the intro to corduroy it was totally cool i mean you knew like anybody that was plugged in and thinking about it you knew what was happening they were referencing being in london ontario and pulling the class into it it was just great i didn't have any idea that it was gonna go to corduroy you just was like what's happening is this just gonna be like a little riff one off are they actually gonna bust into the song but it was classic it was really well timed and well put sounds like it could be a nice replacement if they don't want to do interstellar overdrive that they can do that not in london and it would get the same kind of excitement but they know how special it was at this show and they hadn't brought it back but as we mentioned and we're going to continue mentioning a lot this show is a show first and this corduroy is the first ever to kind of give you the sense of the extended corduroy now 
What a lot of people think when I say that is that call and response where Ed does the whoa, 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 and that I know a lot of people are bothered by that. I know that's kind of a trigger point for a lot of fans that don't necessarily like that. But this version is different because it's not necessarily a pandering version. This is just two extra jams that are sandwiching the everything as chains line. great thing because I got the same thing in Wrigley the great thing is that when you think that they're gonna go into that instead they're doing a jam is that the whole crowd is still singing that line kind of in the middle of it not realizing oh we're doing something different here and then getting that whole change in tone that Ed sings it afterwards felt at least at Wrigley end here too from what I can hear on the bootleg just felt like a real creative and kind of special thing that they were doing Oh, absolutely. Going back to what you were talking about in Elderly, when people are singing parts that they recall from past shows, past events, this was an area where people weren't prepared for the turn. They were like, okay, this is where this part of the verse happens, and this is where this chorus happens, and everything was being rearranged, seemingly on the fly. But I would imagine that this is probably something, if it hadn't just happened in the couple of practice performances that they did in the venue the previous couple of days when they were warming up for this show, that it was something that they must have been noodling around with back in the studio while getting prepared to get out on the road. But you could feel it. You could feel like the build that they were trying to get there. It's not quite there yet. It's got some moments where they're trying to feel each other out for some of the changes into the new directions. But it is the blueprint for what's going to happen for the foreseeable future. And that's not going to be the only composition change in a song. We got another one that's coming a little bit later that we got to talk about. But, you know, first things first, let's get into the live debut of Mind Your Manners. Here it is, the first one.
every time that we get a live debut, it's so interesting to break down. Before we're going to break down, I think we're going to get Javier's take on this because he wants to talk a little bit about what Mike was using. And it's very rare that we get this, but I think it's time to get a little bit of a demo from Javier too. So you get to hear him playing the song while he's talking about the song and then we'll kind of get into our thoughts. we're hearing in the back it's cool it's fresh it's a new approach it's something that these guys were not doing in the past we know that mike and stone are delay users specifically mike he uses delay more just to add more textures and layers for other songs stone is deceivingly good when using delays because he will always have little trace in his specific songs as well but this is new the first time that I heard this for this tour, and I'm like, that's cool, because it really reminded me of that rockability approach to have that Gretsch guitar with that little slapback delay. That is the name of that technique. That is the name of the very short delay that you use. In this case, it's called slapback delay. For this tour, Mike picked the MXR carbon copy, which is an analog delay. It is dark but also has this very distinctive sound like a good old school tape delay. Think of the echo rack. Think of any sort of unit that is going to use tape to recreate that delay. Combine that with that scorching, tight, super bassy present sound that a guitar with a P90 pickup is going to give you, which in this case is going to be the Gibson Les Paul 1959 Special, which is a double cut, that it was a gift for Mike from his wife Ashley for his 40th birthday. Yes, this is a 1959, it's not a 1959 that you thought it was a 59, but it ended up being a 60, pun intended, if you get the Fender joke. But I got super excited when I heard about this, when I heard this effect, because this is something that it was not used by them before, and it adds a ton of presses, and it adds something a little, little fresh and a different approach to the song as well. Examples where you can hear this, Mind Your Manners, and the other one that it was used a ton when it was being played is Let the Records Play. So, whenever you're hearing this clip, that's how it sounds, like that little slapback delay, super dark, just getting that little trail in the back. So, touched up on it a little bit before with Tim, but this hits, and it hits rather early, which is exciting and kind of catches you for a loop, but your reaction to the song once you hear it here? Just spot on dynamite. This is one of the songs from this record and from this era that still sounds crisp and fresh all these years later. It's got that raw energy and dynamics that are exciting about the new music that these guys put out. And there's a couple of points where you can find in this where they're still feeling out how to play a song live on stage for the first time. It just crackles. I mean, it was explosive. You could see them all giddy to get this song out of their system. Like they were bursting at the seams. I can remember in my eyes, like splitting my right eye, looking at stone and my left eye, looking at Mike as I'm basically center stage eighth row. And I'm watching them both 
having like complete meltdowns rolling out the riffs on this and i just was like this is going to be absolutely stellar to hear for years to come yeah and they played it that whole entire tour they played it once it got into 2014 2016 2018 and it kind of stayed around a little bit last year too and i wonder if that's going to be another one where in September they're going to be like, okay, we need some songs for that juicy rock and roll section in the beginning. So throw it in again. Maybe it might get two plays out of the nine. Who knows? But this is one that stuck around for pretty good reasons because it can juice up a crowd. All right, let's section together. Got some given a fly and sad. Now, Patrick, you know all about this. I'm just going to be real with you for a second here. I didn't realize this when I was listening to it, but my foot was tapping during Got Some a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's, it's it's a pretty good version. It's a pretty good version. It's sparkling. Like they had energy with it. I mean, they, and this is the first time I got to see it. I know some of the backspacer stuff can be not necessarily like top tier things that people are going to go after from time to time. But when they hit this song, when they're dialed in with it. It sounds great. And this is a night where it was sharp. I mean, they were like on fire and completely in sync on it. Yes, they were absolutely, you're right. Dialed in is the best way to put that. And I think that's momentum coming from a fired up corduroy, the first time they're playing a brand new song, which they absolutely nailed. And then got some, which is one of the few holdovers from the Backspacer tour. and. As you get further into 2013, it's in almost every set, it's in encores and things like that, and they don't necessarily have that same kind of firepower that they have with this version, but it still felt like there was a purpose with this song, and it's not one of my favorites, and I think when we get to Hartford from this year, we'll really get down to why, but this one, I can give respect and homage when there's a good version, so there it is there's your positivity for the day i guess for me given a fly and sad what's the talking points that you want to bring up with one of those two things one with given a fly it's still to my taste it's a little bit too quick i struggle with it when they're playing it with the sort of upbeat tempo once you get into the chorus it all equalizes because that's where the tempo is supposed to get up i wish they would even out the periods between that because i think some of the beauty of the song sometimes gets lost when it's ramped up a little bit it sounds fantastic being in the venue is a totally different thing that's the one thing that i always have to remind myself when you're in the room i'm not hearing the tempo when you're listening back to it sometimes you're hearing the tempo and that's a totally different vibe in the room all you're hearing is the explosiveness of everyone's reaction to what is clearly an odds-on fan favorite. But of the two, Sad is the one. It's got that rarity hook to it that just lets you gravitate. And it's kind of a bit of a, at least in the first half of it, a little bit bare bones. It's not as driving as a lot of the live versions and certainly on the record, it has like a stripped down take on it. And the bad quality of the bootleg doesn't help this at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's kind of mostly Ed and Matt and Jeff and then Mike and Stone are kind of sitting back a little bit. It's interesting. I noticed that Mike had a really good moment towards the end when he extends that solo into Mm -hmm. that final verse and he really went off on this like this was 
almost to the end that he kept on going with what he was doing and, and using in the solo and it, and it lasted till the last note. I don't think that you get to see that that often with the song. It sort of breaks at a moment and then he goes back and finishes the song that way. But I was really impressed. There was a lot of feedback kind of sound to that too, which you don't hear that on sad. It's usually a very clean song, but having the feedback was definitely something I don't think I've ever heard on that before. Yeah, definitely agree. Now, I like that you brought up the speed of Given a Fly, because in a minute we'll get into Even Flow, and that's one of the talking points I have on that. But you got to remember, 2013, that they're adding so many more songs in, upwards of 35 to 37 on some nights, that a lot of these songs are starting to pick up in tempo a lot, and Given a Fly was absolutely crucial in being one of those. And yeah, I've always had the same problem. I've sort of given up on that thought, because it's given a fly and I'm going to enjoy it anyway. But I definitely agree. I like it to be a little bit more building and, and surging at the right moment instead of same tempo whole entire time. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Now, before we get into even flow and talk about the speed, I think we got to talk about alone. Because, first of all, from this point forward, they're going to go 10 songs in a row after even flow where they play straight through. And that's got to feel like, okay, we're getting something real good here. The band is in a way and they were ready to play on this night. But to get at the tail end of this where maybe you think, okay, after sad, that's a good point to stop and, and address and say hello, which they kind of did before some songs, but not in an extended manner. Alone just kind of comes out of nowhere. And yeah. you're like, What's going on here? This is one of the serious collectors of all serious collectors type songs. What was your reaction when you hear those chords come in? Oh, completely stoked. This is the first and only time I've got to hear it. You know, it was dabbled in over these years, like particularly the, the last decade. They played it in 04 at the warm up shows for Voters for Change, and it got a couple more plays on that. And then spilled out into the Canadian tour in 05 and a couple times in 06. So it would make like two appearances over the years, but I never thought the stars would align. And when I heard the riff start, I was just like, what is going on? How is this unfolding like this? And it was just so much fun being a fan for so many years and not to beat a dead horse on this, but having been out of the game for five years to come back and hear this was just absolute joy just a classic that i'd adored since 1992 when i first heard it you had a little question for javier on mike and the slide pick right yes just about his choice of slide and i think i saw some video that it was a glass slide but i was wondering what his take was well i think he's going to talk a little bit about that so once again another gear guru segment So while you're listening in the back, I was trying to get as close as I could for you to hear the differences and to listen the little nuances that a Wawa pedal and a Fender Strat can do while you're switching pickups back and forth. Go from neck pickup to bridge pickup. 
the tonality and the scope of tone that you can get out of those two little things is gigantic. The coolest thing about the song, in my opinion, is how groovy is the riff the Stone is playing in the back. I don't think Alone will be the song that it is if it's not for making the perfect compliment for Ed's voice and what everybody else in the band is doing. Now, when it comes to this light, in this case, I think we are listening to a or a steel slide or a brass slide because you have a lot of brightness in an even more brighter guitar, which will be in this case a Fender Stratocaster. You can really hear it on the track, even though that we didn't have a really good recording for this. It was very obvious that there's something going on when he was executing that solo, that it was not a plastic slide. Plastic slides are a little bit more darker. They're not going to keep the same sustain that a steel or brass slide will have. But in this case, I've heard legends that maybe even Mike have played a few songs with like a sepo lighter. So I think he know what he's doing. I love when they add the slide. I think it adds a lot to a song, especially when you don't have to be super flashy about the solo or go like super fast speed. It's just a very cool element. And I think it fits perfectly fine with all the different little nuances you're hearing in this live performance. Javier, thanks so much. Great to have you on. As always, your segments are gold. Thank you so much. Now let's go into even flow. And this is really where I kind of figured out, all right, this is like a six, maybe six and a half minute version of this. Even flow is going to be another one where if they're on it, like they want it to be fast. They want the crowd to be sweating. They want the crowd to be moving with this. And that's 2013. The groove kind of gets lost in some of the songs, especially the more popular songs that you want, like Jeremy and Porch especially, like those songs get to be real fast in spots, but it does have the sense in a way of like, I gotta catch my plane, you know what I mean? Like I've grown as time goes on and I've loved every era of this band, I've grown really accustomed to the great groove kind of versions, especially of Evenflow, and to hear this a little bit more sped up it's look for what it is it's very good and it accomplishes exactly what it sets out to do but you like the groove it brings you back to when you heard it in its original form not to say that there's anything wrong with a faster version but the groove really kind of brings the song back to what its element is and even with the slightly sped up versions from say 2003 5 6 you know, and onward, but like those are some years like I've spent a lot of time listening to the song. I remember being at shows in 03 and 05 and the one show that I was at in 06 when they would play it. This is like Ed cigarette song. And in fact, this night there's even a video you can go watch where he sneaks off the side to light his, his smoke. <laughs> and I remember thinking at times when I would see him start sauntering back and you're like, 
taking my hands and they're like, now go finish your cigarette. Let's let this go for a bit. <laughs> um, and this is, this is one of those nights where it's like, let's let it hang out and breathe a little bit. But to your point, this year, this tour was where it was definitely on a bit of a hyperdrive. And even nights where they played it maybe another half minute, minute longer, it's still, it's intense and fast versus having that loose groove to it. Even if it's intense and fast, the crowd is in such good spirits through 10 songs here. Ed gives them the mic and they're singing at the top of their lungs and Ed's just doing these kind of yelps at the end. Again, just demonstrating what kind of fun that they were having and through 10 songs, all monster right in a row. Now now it's time to take a breath, talk to the crowd and talk about some hookers. So, of course, that's like every Pearl Jam show, right? It's time to talk about hookers. Got to find your Dundas hookers on crack somewhere. Yep. Well, if my wife understood the reference, I'd change that to my Wi-Fi. But I feel like she (laughs) would get kind of mad at me if I did that. So I'll hold off. Anyway, if you don't know that story, we'll tell it in two seconds. So Ed says, how about the magic in this guy's hands, Mr. Mike McCready? There was a bit of a spell between when we played last together and being back here. Good to be back together with all the fellas and good to be back here with you. Mentions their 2005 tour of Canada, as you mentioned before, that you went to a couple shows on. If you want to listen to that Ottawa episode, it's available. Maybe not recommended. (laughs) Just listen to the boot. We can get into that maybe later. But anyway... Ed kind of goes back and is familiarizing with the local area and remembers everything. And I, I wonder venue and they always kind of end up in towns and cities that they love to explore. And I wonder if that was one of those things that London was just a place that they had really, really high opinion of. And that's why they made it back. And that's why they kind of isolated the show to be, in a sense, the warm-up, but I, I, I feel like it's a little more than that. I feel like it's called it the debut more than the warm-up, if you want. But he goes on to say, I remember every single street. I remember a pool hall and style of houses. It was burned into my brain, and it's exciting to be back. The other night in the hotel, I was trying to get on the internet to gather some lists of songs that we haven't played before. Oh my god, what do I got to play? People are probably shouting shit out, and of course, all that Dirty Frank nonsense. Were you hearing that? Was there a lot of Dirty Frank requests, do you remember? I don't recall hearing Dirty Frank, but there was a lot of hooting and hollering going on for Red Mosquito, Rats... Satan's oh, you were talking rats. That was you. No, I swear, actually, I was just listening to it. I was not the lead vocalist on that. But I do not recall hearing any Dirty Frank references being pulled Very from rare. the crowd. So he goes on to mention, it seems like he's kind of doing the old man, I don't understand technology sort of thing, which at the time, I don't think he was even 50 at that point. He says on the Wi-Fi connections, you see all these names. And he kind of does one of these, what is Linksys? Which is obviously, I haven't seen that name in years, but that was obviously one of the generic Wi-Fi modem things that was around back early days of Wi-Fi, I suppose. But he says, you see all these names? One of the Wi-Fi names stood out, and that was Dundas Hookers on Crack. Did you know what Dundas Hookers on Crack was when you had heard it that moment? 
No, I had no idea what was going on there. I had seen some odd things myself, whether it was Wi-Fi, nothing quite that crazy at the hotel I was at. And I also was struggling to find things to watch just to figure out what was going on news wise, because there was only Garfield cartoons on the channel that I was able to access. <laughs> so it was an odd one. Oh, Canadians. So I, mean, I can't say I was surprised about Dundas hookers on crack. It seemed kind of <laughs> normal. I mean, there, there's worse than Garfield. Oh, there normal. absolutely is. Obscure television, though, for, for syndication, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> anyway, so the kind of the tail end of the story there is that Stone was out running that morning, and he passes by somebody in a phone booth that's slamming the phone on the phone booth, and that kind of... I don't know where that was connecting. Neither did uh, Ed. Yeah. Ed has no idea what was going on there. This is like the perfect segue for like the beginning of absent minded uh, Ed. Dad Ed jokes that go nowhere. It was <laughs> it was unbelievable. I'm glad I'm not the only one in the room that felt that way, but he's able to finish himself off and said this is for all the hookers in London. And that's gonna get you into a cool section here of I got shit and in hiding. What's interesting so far in the first 10 songs is like there doesn't feel like any rust at all. They played a little bit down in South America in late March, early April, down in Buenos Aires and Chile and somewhere in Brazil, probably Sao Paulo. But from the first couple, you aren't able to notice any hitch within anything. But I got shit's the first one where you do kind of see that like Ed is a little bit confused mid song and there are still moments that they kind of got to shake off here and they got to figure out on the fly sort of thing. But this was the first thing that I noticed that was a little, Hmm. Okay. Just a tad bit of rust. I could see that it was the first time I mean, he might've been maybe had a hangover from his hookers on crack story <laughs> or what was going on there. But this was the first song of the night where there was a little bit of a misdirect, if you will, nothing huge, but it definitely was not as crisp as you could hear this on other nights. I think overall though, just getting these songs feels like one after the other. Cause after even flow, sometimes like you can get a more common song. You can get like a song that is like a cool down song just for a minute. And usually that would go to like a daughter or elderly woman or something like that. But these are deeper cuts. I got shit while it was a single, I believe off Merkin ball. It really wasn't something that everybody knew. And in hiding is the 11th track on yield so that's another deep cut that the hardcore fan is going to be into and it really felt like these songs got a great reaction especially in hiding it reminds me of some of those really good in hidings in, in that era where it just kind of lets them go and they soared with this this was a crowd soaring moment yeah absolutely i mean it kind of echoes the opener in present tense i mean you know present tense isn't a single by any stretch of the imagination but it's one of those songs in the catalog in hiding that gets elevated by the fans love of it and its importance to the yield era and any time that they're busting it out just brings a bit of juice to the building and it's one that frankly i'd love to hear them play more often it has such great energy and it had everything you want from it he sounded great on it. He sounded great this whole night, to be frank. Like, this is a period in time where he still had pretty solid ability to go range on songs. And, you know, in Hiding's one where he can take it up 
a notch and it sounds awesome. Well, talking about taking it up a notch now, we got about 50 seconds of this here, which is like on the faster side of Lucan, but I've been kind of on the hunt lately for the fastest and most efficient version where Ed gets, if not all the lyrics, then maybe misses one. And it's always turns into good start, does the chorus, and then at the end, it's just like brain fart and just go ah, da, 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 and transition into not for you. I had hope for this one, but quickly we were deceived. That's a hunt that you're never going to win. <laughs> this song, this song, and I love it. it. It's hard to find something that's not in like the 96 to 98 era that isn't somewhat on the level. Past that time frame, there's always a little bit of, I forgot that part of the verse. I forgot this word. I forgot that word. I forgot where we started. So yeah, Lucan's always a little bit of a gamble of what's going to happen, where it's going to break down, where the speed bump's going to hit. Yeah, <laughs> I think we all know that and we all kind of don't care because it's Lucan and we get excited and after maybe less than a minute, it's on to the next. And I think the best transition that you can possibly get from Lucan is that rolling drum beat that goes right into Not For You and getting those three chords coming in. And that feels good every time you get that. That starts to juice the audience up. It's pretty common from this point forward that Ed's going to change a lot of lines to sort of address the audience. And instead of saying all that sacred comes from youth, all that sacred comes from you and pointing out to the crowd. That's going to happen a lot more, which is great and that's the way that you know that they're feeling real good about where they are. But, oh my goodness, this modern girl transition into black, that, to me, because I don't know if I've ever heard that before, at least so seamless and beautiful like that, but it hit the sweet spot. My whole like a picture on a sunny day Going back and listening to it a few times was like really, really mind opening. I think it probably in the moment was so overwhelmed with the experience of like just how good the ending jam of Not For You into Modern Girl was. And then overall, Black is a barn burner. And then to be able to zero in and listen back to it in the transition, it's fabulous. I mean, it's like something that you wish you'd hear more often. 
in some capacity. It doesn't always have to be these songs, but like you basically can hear that they can do it. And it's like, go ahead, don't hold back. Don't feel like you have to change guitars on every track. Take your rig with what you have and use your knowledge to make the transition work. This version of Black, you talked about this being a pretty heavy version of Black and really kind of being a barn burner, but Mike's solo on this, you know, we're so used to the soul crunching version and the one that tugs at your heartstrings and the one that gets really emotive. This is a very showy version of Black that it doesn't feel like you got a whole lot, but he's kind of going off and doing what maybe he would do in like a porch solo but a little bit more refined in that way to kind of fit what the mood is but it sounds more of like a solo solo here instead of like a something that's coming from the gut i can hear that yeah to me it was really grasping for the moment versus trying to change the moment in many ways this kind of harkens back to some of the better 1995 versions of black which are a little bit shorter and some of the 2000 versions when he first started really trying to build them out a bit you know there's some moments in 98 where he was doing that but not quite as much and instead of them all being really gut-wrenching sometimes they're really subtle following what would be somewhat seemingly like a typical progression structure for playing either a chord-based solo or trying to go through some type of scale-based solo, but it's still had a lot of flavor to me. It's definitely different. It's not that one that's gonna like snap your gut, but it has a lot of touch to it. Yeah, I can definitely see that with that. And then, you know, as things cool down at the end and kind of get off that, what I like to say, like the smooth plane landing that Black has sometimes with its ending, it has a little bit of a lyrical improv. It was very subtle, but had a nice touch to this. Now you're ending the set with Porch, and there's a whole new facet to Porch. We got a whole new stage set up, which means the orbs are out. And when you saw those orbs come down, what's your first thought? I mean, they'd been hanging there up in the rafters, changing colors all night. And I was like, you know, that's interesting. What's that about? But then when they come down, all of a sudden, Jeff's using it as like batting practice. And Ed, a couple of times, jumped on a couple of them and was testing out whether they were going to be able to hold him. It's an interesting look on the stage. All of a sudden, they're all surrounded by giant light bulbs. (laughs) (laughs) So that was their vibe at the moment. But it was interesting. I wouldn't say it was distracting. I was wondering where they were quite going with those as a set piece, but they seemed to have fun with it. Do you think Ed was nostalgic for dropping the park and wanted sort of like a more of a safety net version of that maybe? Could be. I I think honestly, the intention of them really had to do with like the lighting effects because they were alternating between green and red all night long between parts of songs and songs so i think it just the dangling effects and it almost always was porch in at least videos that i've seen again i didn't get to a bunch of these shows this was the show for 2013 that i was at but it seemed that the drop down of the lights was always porch yes 100 percent. and i would say I believe that tour was around like 30 something shows. I think that 
probably at 28 of them, Porch was the main set closer. So that was a key moment, and that was always happening. And I remember, again, I'm going to bring up Brooklyn again, but Ed was swinging back and forth and got on top of it, and that's when he got most comfortable with it. And half the time, Jeff will break one of them. I, I wonder how many reserves that they had in the trucks for those. But, yeah, like another kind of visual aspect of these shows that is unforgettable from this tour. Now, I got to ask... Because we talked about like Ed getting a little zany with the Dundas Hookers thing, but he's a little zany in this little porch kind of thing that he goes on by saying... just getting down to that whole element that I kind of prefaced earlier about present tense. He was feeling that this is where they wanted to be at that moment in time. I think he was trying to like encourage that idea of people like be present, be in the moment. This is the now, so enjoy it and understand it and know that in this entire vast expanse that's out there, this might be it. And it sounds super weird because, yeah, he's like, yeah, in this moment, in this universe, on this planet, and this. But I think that's where he was coming from. He was feeling good that day. And I, I like the last little bit in there. And together, it's my favorite place I could ever be. Anytime that there's a show, yes, that is your favorite place that you can ever be. And, yeah, we feel you on that one, Ed, and we agree. All right, it's time for the encore, but let's pause for station identification, talk about some things real quick here. Let's start off with thanking a brand new patron. Let's thank Michael Ournig. Thank you so much. I believe Australia, if I'm not mistaken. I thought that that was the dollar symbol that I got there, but it could be somewhere else. But Michael, you'll have to get in touch because on the Giggle Egg tier, you do get a requested episode just like Tim got today. So anytime in the future, let us know what you want us to cover and we will put it in our queue. So thank you so much for joining up on Patreon. Yeah. Love to hear new people coming on board. Absolutely. It's contagious in a way that everybody that's been there from the very beginning, and we're so thankful that guys like you and Aurelian and Bradley and Curtis have been here for so long. And then whenever people kind of see that, that's sort of the group that gravitates. People see that and they're like, okay, well, I can learn a lot from those guys. And everybody has something to bring to the table here and just sort of gravitate towards it. And yeah, I love that whole aspect too. We're very thankful for that whole group that I just mentioned there for just being with us and sticking with us for so long. You guys have just been excellent. So I'll just throw that out there for you. Patrick, do you want to like give a little hint as to what they can get or what they should expect from Patreon here? Because you've been on it for, well, since day two. 
Well, you got, as you previously mentioned, the ability to request a show that you would like to have covered. You also have access to special episodes like evolution episodes, as well as what my co-host and I do for Hallucinogenic Recipe. So you get first access to that stuff when we drop it and all sorts of other special invites and opportunities that invent themselves in the moment. You know, we got a little community that exists out there that has kind of come together through the Patreon process, frankly, and it's great. We've made a lot of friends that we wouldn't have known without this. And that in of itself is worth the price of admission. I like that. Yeah. Look, there was a couple different reasons why I wanted to start the podcast, but one of them was to get people to be friends with me. So I think I've at least accomplished that, if not the whole talking about Pearl Jam thing and telling stories thing. So let's kind of go over the package here. Unless we forget that in September, we are going to be doing the post-game reports and doing morning after instant reaction kind of deal. And all of them this year, unlike John and I that were just watching on live streams, all of them will be directly from site that we will be able to, after the show, get somebody on like you from Minneapolis or Austin, get you on with a group of people, talk about what you just witnessed and everything like that, and just react to it right after it happens, because that's the best way to do it. And for the people that were there, that's the people that we really want to hear from. You don't want to hear more from people that watch it on a live stream kind of deal. So those are the things that I love about what we do is that We try to give you something that's a next day reaction sort of deal. So I think that's a cool thing. And I don't think you're really getting that from anywhere else. If you want to join Patreon, patreon.com slash live and four legs, or go to the Patreon app and search for live and four legs or live and four legs.com. Click on the become a patron button. Again, the tiers, you can join the bonus leg tier for $1 a month or if you want to start the free trial, you could do that under the bonus leg tier as well. It's a seven day free trial. You can also sign up for the Giggle Leg tier, $5 a month, or the Horizon Leg tier, $10 a month. Before we get back into the show, just one thing I want to get on your guys' minds a little bit, talking about September shows and all that. We are planning to do something in Chicago on the off day, and there's a lot of things that are kind of being planned and worked with right now, and if a lot of people that are listening were in Vegas or know what happened in Vegas... It didn't stay in Vegas. I had to tell everybody what happened, and that was a really fun night of Pearl Jam karaoke, and we're trying to get that together again. We're locking down a venue. We're looking into things. We're looking into prices, and hopefully we'll be able to put together and do another fundraiser for Cystic Fibrosis Foundation because that is definitely on our minds when we'll be in Chicago. So nothing official as of this moment, but hang on to that thought. And we will hopefully be back next week and and be able to give you more information. So just kind of giving you a teaser before getting to the real meat and potatoes of what's going to happen. All right, back to The Rock. We're out for the encore. Ed gives another nod to the boys going around the horn. Boom gets a fantastic reaction before Ed even gestures over his way. And says, we don't have to work tomorrow, so I think we can stay as long as we want in the lovely Budweiser Gardens. Shit beer. Nice building. I think that should be their motto. (laughs) (laughs) Like, come on, be a little self-aware, you know? (laughs) So the way you're going to kick off the encore is a combination of last songs. 
It could have closed your set because it could have been the two last songs. Also, if you would have thrown in Soldier, it could have been a trilogy. But that's a little, little bit rare for this time period. And even the time period in 2003, which it was utilized, not even 2003, 2001 were those bridge school shows. So you're getting Last Exit and then Last Kiss. Yeah, so interesting because Last Exit is bringing you in and firing up with more energy, but then right away you're turning around to the back and you're going to celebrate with the fans. And I believe they were starting to put equipment back there to make it easier to play to the back. And I know you hate Last Kiss because I was there. I recognized it where they did it in Nashville and immediately you left your seat and went to go get a beverage. I (laughs) uh, So I know that this isn't a fan favorite of yours, but a little interesting is to the direction they were going with here, right? Especially because we know when they got into October, this encore usually started out pretty slow. Like the next three songs would be typical for what the sets were like. Absolutely. I mean, and and I'll say like the biggest problem I have with Last Kiss is that I feel like they could mix it up for that behind the stage moment. Don't go to that always to give a little bit of service for those folks that have to sit behind the stage. But yeah, that structure, this is a bit of a different overall vibe. Like a lot of the October stuff would be more of a slow build into an end to a degree. But this is like a little bit of a sandwich structure where you start off out of the gate with last exit and then you go into a flow of songs that kind of keep things on a pretty even keel low down that campfire vibe for most of encore one and the sets selections post last kiss are fairly interesting i mean there's a couple of things that are going to holdovers from previous record but you're pulling out a couple of fairly deep cuts into the mix and that's where you're getting some of your flavor for what's coming you know again hard to know at that time that this is the blueprint and not just kind of a like one-off evening, but knowing what we know now, this is how they're going to structure the coming months. I think you were a little coy on last kiss there, sir. (laughs) I believe there was a fuck this before you ran off and got your beverage. I don't think I said, fuck this. I said, I'm going out. (laughs) It's, you know, it's it's, the same thing. Interpreted. But no, but I mean, the thing is with that, it's a song that at the time when it came out, I appreciated it. I have a lot of like history with the original actual single. So it was like very cool to hear Pearl Jam cover it. I just didn't expect it to become a staple. I've heard it enough. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. Look, I'm not against you. Honestly, that version in Nashville, I had seen it in Toronto and I was hoping, okay, that's good. That's my one. But two times the tours. That might be a little much. Anyway, that section we were just talking about before that Pearl Jam would go and utilize this to its full extent to bring back so many songs from the dead. And Parachutes is one of them. It's not coming back from the dead here, but it's only the 19th time out of 23 that they played it. Man of the Hours won another really rare one. And then Just Breathe is the holdover, as you were talking about before. What from this sticks out to you. There's some talking points about all three, but what is the one here? 
if it's got to be the one, it's parachutes because I didn't catch that at the one show that I saw in 06 because they hadn't busted it out yet because I saw them May 12th in Albany and it didn't get played till late that month on that leg. So to be able to catch that was special because it's a bit of a rarity. It's I know it's a different sort of vibe. Some people don't get into these slower songs that Stone writes, but well, one guy I, did. If you listen to that, like right <laughs> as the song was starting, he's like, oh. yeah, yeah, yep. And so that one to me, it was a home run for not having been able to catch it before. So that was a great moment. You know, with the other two, I just have to point out there that we don't have to talk about one of them as much as I thought, because on Just Breathe, you're waiting, you're waiting. No, they did Jeff Dirty yet again. No baseline, so no discussion. That is the rule here. Man of the Hour was unreal from this show. This is going to be one of my favorite moments from this. It's just the way that they build the tension and the way that Ed digs in and he's connected with the crowd and he's been so joyous the whole entire night. And then you bring this like deep song in and he completely flips and he completely changes on a dime and he's able to tap into that. And that's that's kind of special. Like that's something that Ed does really, really well that I don't think enough people give him that credit for. But I mean, up until that ending, like that ending and how every line kind of builds to the next thing and the way that the crowd reacts after he finishes that, like that was a massive moment in my eyes. Can't disagree with you. I mean, I, I had said parachutes because again, I hadn't seen it and hadn't caught it, but man of the hour is a showstopper from this one absolutely phenomenal it's one that i have had the fortune of catching a few times but you can't have it enough I 
I have not been so fortunate, but hopefully in the four shows I'm seeing in September, maybe something will go my way here. So, yeah, definitely a big highlight from this. What might not be a big highlight from this is Daughter. Now, I mentioned when we talked about Corduroy that Corduroy had the new jams and the change in bridge and everything like that. And to me, that that was a plus. I know a lot of people, it's a little controversial, but that was a plus change. Whatever they were trying to change on Daughter was a minus, minus, minus change because it didn't really make sense to anybody. So I'll preface this by saying that at Wrigley, the day before the show, I got in line for merch and everything like that. And it was about like seven o'clock, eight o'clock at night. And the band was sound checking. So we heard, I believe B girl was played. Uh, I can't quite remember what the other songs were, but we heard daughter and it ended up being like this specific version of daughter that they were trying again, where Ed was using enunciations in weird spots where the bridge was coming in at a weird time. And I was thinking then, like, what are they doing with this? Are they really planning something weird for Wrigley? Because I didn't hear anything about what happened in London. I didn't hear anything about uh, how this one went down. And honestly, up until researching the show, I had no idea that this version of Daughter was that. And it's good, like, I kind of have some closure on that now, that I wasn't crazy by thinking that that Daughter was a different take. But, oh, man, this is almost unsalvageable here because I don't know if it's like they have a goal for it and somebody's confused and Ed has to readjust or somebody else has to readjust but nobody really seems to know where this is going at all There's definite confusion. I'll preface this in saying I like what they were trying to do, but they didn't figure out what the full game plan was. But you could see from video, and I remember it happening in front of my eyes, there's a point in time where Stone is like, dude, where are we going with this? And Ed looks over his shoulder at Stone, and Stone's like, I got nothing left, man. Where do you want me to go? Like, you can watch the video and happen, and they're both like, oops. So... I think what it was, and to your point, I didn't even realize, I knew that they had sound checked it, but I didn't realize they had sound checked a similar approach. I think that they had found something, and again, who knows if it was in the practice events that they did in this arena the nights before the show, or if it was something that they had been working on while they were getting prepared to hit the road back in Seattle, but there was something that 
they obviously felt like was a thing, but they couldn't quite get it. So when you look at this compared to Corduroy, Corduroy went in a place and it developed. And this vibe, this feel that they were trying to tap into, it just didn't materialize quite the same way. Now it picks up at one point, like right after that moment where it kind of breaks down and Matt's just drumming. And he's like, should I stop drumming or am I going to keep the beat to daughter here? What's going on, guys? And then finally, Stone's like, okay, I'm going to get back into it. And Mike and Jeff both start to pick up on the other side of stage. But yeah, I think it's an interesting idea. It's just one of those moments where the plan or the thought that they had with it just didn't quite materialize the exact same way that they'd practiced it or had hoped it was going to come off. It missed a little bit of a mark. Boy, Ed's remark at the end that was two daughters that was twins he ain't wrong a little thing on the tag it didn't materialize into this but it sounded like he was doing a hold me love me and it kind of sounded like if that would have extended it would have turned into eight days a week but i can't count that as the tag here no yeah but i i hear what you're saying it had it taken off that might have been where it was gonna go sure all right you really need to wash your hands with something right after that. And I thought that Unthought Known was a great one to just be like, all right, back to the rock and take it into the stratosphere. This version had just tremendous builds and surges. And the entire crowd is clapping at every point when they start to come off that high and get down to where they're about to build up again. The crowd is so into it. But the transition into evolution i thought was just top notch once again don't know how you can get the two songs to really feel like they're both one but they made it seem very seamless and got off to a nice start with evolution because of it absolutely it has that again like it's something that i honed in on in going to this in hindsight at the time i never thought anything of it because i didn't experience or think that there was anything changing in ed's vocal range this is one of the like really great evolutions like it has that same hard crunch that he had from the get-go i mean the howls are great his ability to range it is great and that transition out of unthought known into it is just so interesting and unique and something that i would have hoped that they would have done a couple more times and, and maybe they did and i don't know it but it's not something that's ever crossed my radar before yeah i can't think of it and granted i can pull it up on the footsteps which i'll actually do right now this is what you can do on live footsteps you go to the search function and then where it says select song you go to unthought known and then add the song with the plus button you're going to go evolution and let's see consecutive here you click on this consecutive box submit and it's been played back to back seven times and surprisingly one of them was the first night of msg in 2010 
The last time they did it was actually last year. They did it at the Worker Festival. That's interesting. Wow. Cool. So a couple times here and there. All right. Yeah. I feel you. Okay, we're at Encore 2 right now. So Ed says, if you got the time, we got the beer. Maybe not Budweiser, but they got something. And then as they go into Smile, he's saying there's a stone on bass and Jeff on guitar, and that's how we're going to go into it. Smile is going to follow with Brain of Jay. That's going to get like Ty Domi and Chris Chelios dedications and everything like that. Smile's real interesting for this era because that is starting to really blossom in not just like the live setting, but like in being a song that the fandom takes to heart now that you're seeing the three crooked hearts like tattooed on people and the I miss you already. And obviously I've taken to that because that's the sign off for every single episode, but it's starting to attach with people more than it did in the no code era. A lot of it is due to as time goes on, more and more people find connection with it and the band themselves then find connection with it because the crowd is connecting to it. So everybody gets on the same plane, but in 1996, it was used very sparingly. And that song especially is just very interesting, the way that it's evolved and turned into bigger and bigger moments as the years have gone by. Yeah, it's become, like you said, that thing that fans have gravitated to. It's a deep cut, but it's something that hits the mark. Brain J, as I mentioned, is going to follow again. Shout out to Ty Domi, Chris Chelios, hockey players in Canada. Go figure. And then he's going to shout out a guy in a yellow shirt that came all the way from Denmark and requested the song in the elevator. And then, like, at the beginning of the song, he kind of mumbles somebody else. It kind of sounded like Mark and his son. Like, he's trying to get it out real quick before he's able to sing, but it seemed like he had a lot of dedications to get through here. singing along to this bridge of Brain of Jay. I can't remember if I've ever heard that before. And again, bootleg quality and being directly in the audience, wherever this was recorded from, it's very heavy on Ed. So maybe it was like in the dead center, maybe around where you were. But hearing a song that I know I've always attached myself to, everybody else around singing it lyric by lyric, I'm like, yes. This is what needs to happen in Dallas this year, ladies and gentlemen, because they're going to play it in Dallas. That's essentially why I'm going to that. I think we've addressed that before. But this is what needs to happen with this song. Like, everybody needs to be on their feet and needs to be rocking out to it. Yeah, this is one of the highlights of the evening because it's unexpected. It kind of felt like because of the request, they were like, all right, let's get it in. And to pretty much hit it hard. I mean, you know, that this is not an easy one to just whip out out of the blue. You can't just put it in because it's a quick rocker. It has a little bit of a delicacy to it. At the same time, it has a punch and it also has some hard lyrics that you've got to get out quickly and thoughtfully. 
And to be able to articulate this and put it into a second encore, oh my gosh. I mean, it's again, one of those things that you wish was happening more frequently through the years, but it was a treat to get it. Yep. Now that's my jealousy coming out that you guys got both Man of the Hour and Brain of Jay at the show in, in encores. And one can only hope that that could ever happen again. Man of the Hour and an encore, sure. But Brain of Jay, if they ever show a second encore again, I don't think Brain of Jay is ever joining up the ranks. But yeah, love seeing it here. And they did it a couple times in the encore in 2013, if I can recall. Better Man, and honestly, we could do Better Man alive, rocking indifference, because these songs all together are signifying that these are your final moments of the night. Better Man is going to get you a big crowd moment. And it's interesting because we've done a lot of versions of the song where it's been totally Ed gives it over to the crowd and they sing the whole entire thing. And I'm thinking in the beginning, I'm like, oh, Ed's kind of hogging the spotlight actually singing this. It's, it's sort of rare for us to get one where Ed's singing all the lyrics himself, but he ends up turning the mic around and giving the chorus to the crowd. And yeah, I think another benefit of this whole entire show and listening to this in this fashion is just the way that the crowd has reacted to everything. This is another really good song that the crowd was on top of. Yeah, and it's more of like a older classic version of Better Man. You don't have any tags and it's just kind of straightforward. Like you said, at first he's kind of hogging the presentation of it and then kind of pivots to give some of the chorus, but it's really good. Now, Alive, I always love when Alive comes in because this is a siren to let everybody know, okay, class is almost over, we're heading out for the night. And it feels massive, especially in a tour debut show because, again, you got to think for the band. Like, they had a really great show. They really did. But there were some things that were kind of bumping the road. Daughter, of course. And in their mindset, that's sort of getting all a little bit of the rust out and kind of predicting, okay, where do we stand from here on out? And how are we going to run shows from here on out? And then once you get to a live, I feel like some of that weight that they might have been carrying and maybe this show a little bit less than some of the other tour debut shows, but it feels like there's just a release and just a moment where they're able to connect again and just sort of relax with this and have fun with it. The crowd as been saying the whole entire time you were there pumping their fist and singing along to this and giving the hey chance and it felt like a real big celebration moment on this and rocking as well to follow up on this i felt like rocking had a really really good section where the crowd kept going back and forth with ed and felt like they were ending the night on a real positive wavelength there yeah the building was on fire from Alive through Rockin' and Stone's solos and Rockin' in the Free World were freaking awesome. I mean, it was just gave me big time vibes back to the 2003 tour to hear him jamming off that. And this is that error that he was having that, I don't want to say it was a midlife crisis, but he was getting his stone on with his long hair and his jamming and swaying the head back and forth. So this portion of the night was especially cool like there's times where i can be completely honest where if they're going through a progression of like a better man alive rock and i'm like uh, okay i've heard these songs a lot it was a really really good trio of not really anything that's fan service as much as fan excitement they were like thanks for giving the energy and we're giving it back to you that's really what it was that's why we call it bread and butter sir 
You take one slab of bread, you put some butter on it, nobody's gonna complain. Everybody likes bread and butter. It's so simple and it works so well. And they're gonna close with indifference in the set. And yeah, you know, I think that this ultimately is an indifference set because when you see all these different songs, as we kind of talked about, Sad, Alone, Smile, Brain of Jay, and Hiding, it does feel like you are getting more of the deeper cuts and the rarer ones. And anytime that they throw those together, it does feel like indifference is more of a chance that it's going to close instead of Leadbetter because it's, again, throwing another little curveball at you that you kind of think that you're expecting something and you get the other option that maybe you weren't expecting. Because, again, Rockin' and Alive were such big moments that you'd think easy and on Leadbetter send everybody home happy but redirect a little bit and send everybody home happy on indifference it just works the same and you would think of the flow of the set and some of the things that they busted out it fits that mode it's not indifference in the sense of the anger despair indifference of 1993 1994 1995 it's more about yeah and it's actually don't be indifferent but I'm singing the song Indifference is really what it comes down to in these later years. The funny thing about this one was, man, he's talking at the beginning of it and the band is playing behind it and they're in this beautiful jazzy groove and Stone is feeling it and you could just feel like Ed wants to hit a home run with it. And then he flubs the lyrics. And I remember looking directly at Stone and Stone gives this like side eye to him like, really? really you're gonna knock down my ending moment with dropping the lyrics on that it was classic it was like one of those things that's always stuck with me about the show where he's just like man is that payback for something that i've done in the past where i missed something but i don't know i'm I'm chasing this one i'm chasing the perfect indifference i don't think i've I, i i should i'm i'm chasing another perfect indifference i had one perfect indifference years ago and that's one of my white whales is to get one more perfect indifference see that's where you're getting creative here you know you see a bunch of songs and it's like okay i kind of hit all the rarities here and after a while it's like i'm not gonna go fishing for a hitchhiker or something it's okay like let's get one more good version indifference i like that that's a n- nice little take on that all right well we made it through this one and it's a very very good show and it has a lot of great moments i'm gonna take this first you know since you were the guy that was there and you're the one with the memories i'll have you follow up but my top three on this are gonna be the london calling into corduroy and then corduroy obviously being the new era and the change of the new era version and then number two i'm gonna go man of the hour and number one is present tense the opener i have a feeling that's going to be in your top three and that might be your number one but i don't want to steal things from you so i'll let you have it yeah i'm gonna go number three on this is gonna be smile to open encore two just because the crowd reaction to it and where the vibe was for the night and i love that song it hits me in the feels all the time my number two is going to be also Man of the Hour. I know that I'd said Parachutes was the part of that, but that's like more of a personal hit. In the, that was your the collector ch- coming yeah, out. Yeah, the, the, the checkbox versus the performance. 
Not that it was a bad performance, just saying that the thing that stuck out for the collector card. But yeah, I'm going to be in total agreement. Number one was present tense. This is one of my favorite versions of present tense for a lot of reasons. And it set the tone for a really, really awesome evening. That's leaving a lot of cards on the table because there's some things about sad that are great. There's alone. There's in hiding. That's good. Black is different, but I really liked it. But yeah, I'm going smile. Man of the hour, present tense. Excellent, excellent, excellent. That is two no code and a soundtrack song right there. All right, let's rate the show here. And I think that most of this rate the show for me is going to be a plea to the band that if they have this one stowed away, and my guess as to why at least this one, Wrigley, I have no idea. Wrigley could have been so much bigger if it wasn't for the rain. That's my guess is that the rain kind of put a damper on things, even though they've done bootlegs in the rain before, but that's all I got for that. My guess is the reason why they decided no bootlegs for at least this show was that they wanted this show to just be in the moment, have your memories, all the stuff that you had just shared and all the stuff that Tim shared earlier to be from that moment and not have to go back to that. And that's that's an interesting way to do it. And it's an interesting way to think about it because all of Pearl Jam is available to everyone at all times. And I'm wondering if that was a little thing that they're like, no, this one's special. Not that we don't want them going back to it, but we want them to remember it for what it was on that date in July 16th in 2013. I could be totally wrong. Maybe they didn't press record on it, but I think if it is stowed away that this absolutely needs to be a vault, maybe vault 12, maybe in the future after that, I have a feeling I know what the next vault is going to be. And for all the old school collectors, I don't think they're going to be too happy at what I think it's going to be. I think it's going to end up being the Apollo theater show because that didn't get an official boot release. So that's just my guess, but that's another conversation for another time. I really, really enjoyed this show for having never really given it its due before. It had a great set list, a set list that I believe if I had made a set list for a show myself, I'd add a lot of these songs in. And it flowed tremendously from song to song. It felt like they weren't just putting together a set list, weren't just playing songs consecutively. It kind of felt like they were sort of painting and painting within the lines and and kind of connecting the dots between those two songs by filling in the art. So I'm going to give this a nine, a very solid nine. Could not agree more. That's exactly where I am on this. This has always been something that I loved. I just like held it as something that having been there and because it wasn't a bootleg in the official release sense that it just was something that maybe only the people that were there gravitated and thought about, but it was always, you know, one that has kind of a tattoo on my heart for a lot of reasons. And it's got some great versions of some of my favorite songs and it has some really incredible rarities that I was fortunate enough to catch being there that night or catch for a second or third time. And yeah, I'm a very, very, very solid nine with this one. And look, I think for a lot of you out there that might be turned off because it doesn't have an official boot, like we have it, get in touch. There are the clips on YouTube. They're not great. 
they exist and you can go through some of them, but I have no problem sending people the bootleg for this just to get you more of a taste of the show because playing the songs on this and getting to hear some of them, like it gives you a taste of what happened, but I think it is good to go back and listen to the whole thing straight up and get a sense for what it was. All right. Great episode. Really enjoyed this one. And it kind of brought up Ottawa before. And this conversation came up last week when Mansfield 3, the episode for that, came out to be like two hours and 37 minutes of an episode. And I think, I'm pretty sure that is the longest in the modern era of Live on Four Legs, which is just post-Matt. Like, when John started, John's first episode was Soldier Field. I think it was episode 42, which we're 200 episodes away from now. So we've kind of evolved since then. I think it's the longest, and you have a distinction of probably being on the other two longest in the pre-modern era, the prehistoric (laughs) era at this point. (laughs) State College in Ottawa went well over three hours long. In State College's case, almost four. Yeah, we rambled a little bit. (laughs) Argued about Satan's bed and mankind and... Matt got the bass out at one point. It's don't listen to that one, guys. Just, just, yeah, that was almost the breaking of the Beatles moment. But hey, we found it, got it together. Matt and I still laugh about that one, too. But this one didn't last that long. So at least we had the luxury of knowing that this will be in more of a normal episode. I think a little longer than most, but that's, that's okay. At least you have a propensity of being on long episodes, you know? I like to wax poetic about Pearl Jam. Nothing bad about that. That's why week in, week out, this stuff all clicks in. Which comes to the next thing I want to share. It is next week's episode. Guess where it is? Guess where it is? London. London's calling yet again. And this time, it's the actual London that everybody would put two and two together to say, oh yeah, that's London. And it comes from a year that we have barely touched. And when I see barely touched, we did one episode on this year, but nobody really thinks of that show as being like a year show. They think of that show as just kind of being a standalone. And that's Vic theater that happened in 2007. They went on a very small European tour, did some festivals. And the show that we're going to cover is the 2007 show at Wembley. And that is a request from Simon, and we'll get his story next week, too, which would be very, very exciting. So back-to-back London episodes, if you guys are excited about that, I'm excited, always excited. And next week, we'll get John back to tell all the Godzilla stories that he's experiencing at the moment. So that's all I got for this one. You know, I'm just going to tell you guys to... Do the same thing as I do every week. Make sure if you're on Apple, Spotify, that you're subscribed so you can get all the updates for the next episodes. And then if you're there and want to give us a a rating, hopefully we have earned the five stars. If you want to say a little bit extra, want to give a little bit of notification to the next person that is looking for a Pearl Jam podcast as to what we do, then leave us a comment on Apple and let them know why you enjoyed what we had to talk about, what you enjoy about the pod, and hopefully this just keeps growing. It's it's the word of mouth. That's the thing here. So we've done a really good job at expanding an audience that way and just keep it going. That's the goal. All right, let's close this one out.
This may be the end. We're here, but not for much longer. And although we may be parting ways, miss you already. Miss you always. Patrick, thank you so much for filling in the gap for John this week. That was just great to have your experiences from this. Because again, John and I have almost covered all of our shows. So it's not every week that we have the in-person experience. So that was awesome. Thank you so much. Away. Happy to do it. That's all there is now. From London to London, we will see you next week. Do you want to do John's closing line? Are you comfortable doing that? Godzilla, London, hookers on crack. I'm having trouble trying to sleep. Counting sheep but running out As time ticks by Still I try No rest for cross in my mind On my own, here we go